Man stands with America. This is Freedom's Disciple with Jonathan Dunn on the Blaze Radio Network. Hello, America. Thank you so much for tuning in today. This, of course, is the show where you come for the accent and you stay for the principles. And we have a jam-packed show for you today. My guest later on is Justin Haskins. We're going to talk about ESG scores. We're going to talk about the Great Reset, crypto solutions, free markets, because there's a lot going on in your country right now that deserve the attention to be discussed because your world and your country and our world is changing. But one of the things I want to do, talk to you about right now, is something that's absolutely critical to understand that affects absolutely everyone and it's going to be so easy to get caught up in the compassionate arguments to make yourself feel, well, why would I oppose this? This is only you know, good and compassionate. That is the minimum wage. And this is starting to become a political football by both left and right. You've got people like Joe Biden. You've got people like Mitt Romney. You've got people like Josh Hawley, all kicking around the minimum wage for different people and different aspects of about $15 an hour. Now, I'm going to talk to you about the stats because it's easy to talk about the stats and say, this is why it's going to, this is why it's a bad thing. This is the impact it's going to have on society. But I also want to start doing a better job on sharing the personal stories with you and giving you examples of these policies and actions. Because I think if we're going to make real inroads with people, if we're going to start making the case for free markets, principles and facts and logic are absolutely going to be critical. But also, we also need to tell personal stories of where this impacts and how this hurts people. So what are the facts? According to the CBO, which is the Congressional Budget Office, which has a long track record, whether it's Republicans as president or Democrats as president, making the case for certain things, but always underestimating it. Most of these things are on on spending, where if the CBO says this is going to add a trillion to the debt, you can pretty much guarantee it's going to add maybe 1.25 or 1.5 trillion. They never, ever come in on the low side. They're like, they're like that pesky construction guy, you know, comes in, oh, yeah. I can fix that. It costs like $2,000 and then the bill is like 2500 That's who the CBO are, but for economics, for the government. So what are the stats? Well, they say if this policy gets introduced, the debt over the next 10 years is going to go up by $54 billion. Now, I know a lot of people are going to go, what's $54 billion? John, we're at nearly $30 trillion. We're at $160 trillion in unfunded liabilities. We're growing our debt every year. What's another $54 billion? I can get the frustration with that, and I totally appreciate it. But the thing is, there's an old saying, which is still true. You look after the pennies, the pounds will look after themselves. These are the type of bills that you need to stop. But the second thing, and this is the more important part about the minimum wage. If you have this policy, the CBO predicts that by 2025, which my God is only four years from now. Do you remember when saying 2025 was like way, like when we're all old? That was like four years away. They predict that there's going to be up to 1.4 million people losing their jobs. 1.4 million people who will be normally employed with this new policy won't be. The economic devastation that that is going to cause people. But if you listen to our friends on the left and you listen to people in the media, you would think that, you know, where well, we've got to raise the minimum wage, we've got to make the case. 
we got to have an understanding. You know, we need a living wage. You would think that by the way that this argument is presented, that it is affects millions upon millions of people. Wouldn't you? Would you think that? Let me give you some numbers for context. Right now in America, give or take, there's between 155 and 156 million people who were employed, who work. How many of those do you think are, hey, I'm on the minimum wage? How many do you think? The answer is 542,000. To put that into a percentage terms, we are talking about 0.34% of the population. That is how many people right now are on minimum wage or close to minimum wage. This is such a small portion of the people. The reason I share this number is because I wanted to spell one of the myths that our friends on the left love to say. Oh, you see, the reason we need a minimum wage, the reason we need to raise this is because you greedy capitalists, you greedy business owners, if we didn't have the minimum wage, people, everyone would be on it. Men, women, literally people who are on like $100,000, but would be on a minimum wage if it wasn't for the government because they're so greedy and they're so selfish. You're talking about such a minute proportion of people. But this increase is going to affect so many people because it's raising from $7.25 an hour to $15. So it's going to capture everyone on minimum wage and everyone all the way up to $15. But that's the facts. Now, let me share the stories with you. And I'm going to share two stories with you that are true about how minimum wage, when you have any minimum wage, let alone an increase of this type, it hurts the poorest people in society. It takes away a competitive advantage. It also hurts people who are not quote-unquote poor. First example, me, my history. Back in the day, back in the day, I sound like such an old man, back in the day, in 2006, 2007, 2008, 2009, I was a manager, managed staff. I was a business and sales manager for different companies. And back, if you remember, in 2008, there was a massive economic crash. It happened in America and it happened, then it spread throughout the world. There was a banking crisis. There was an economic crisis. A lot of people lost their jobs. Now, I'm not saying I was some great manager or some, you know, highly rated prospect that was, you know, waiting to show the world. Not saying that, but I was a decent manager. I understand business, which I can think you, if you listen to me, you might attest it. I understand economics. I understand how to deal with people. I understand how to manage staff and I understand how to train people. I understand the vast majority of business. I'm not saying I was great at it, but I was decent. I'd be kind of that middle management. But when the economic crisis happened, the company I worked for went out of business. And I wasn't like some of my friends and my contacts at the time who said, I am at this level. I'm a, I'm a management. You know, I've lost my job, but I'll only take this level of job. I won't go backwards. My attitude back then was, I don't care. I, I'll take any opportunity. I'll work at any company and grow once I can put food on the table. That is all I wanted. However, because there was such a scarcity of jobs, guess what happened? The laws of supply and demand came in. There wasn't very many jobs available, and there was a lot of workers. The laws of supply and demand. It was a company's hiring market. You could pick and choose who you wanted. So what happened to someone like me who wasn't on minimum wage at the time, but why minimum wages hurt people like me? Is because I had no competitive advantage because I was going for these jobs. I was going for senior management jobs and different roles and people. And that we just don't have, you don't have the right experience. You don't have the right, you don't have a degree. Yes, you have an advanced diploma, but you don't have a degree. We've got a, a degree from, we've, this guy has a degree from this college or that college, or it just has a bit more, more experience or has the right contacts. And guess what? 
Those jobs I went for, I never got. Very rarely got any far because my CV didn't quite stack up. So guess what? I had to go to the lower end. No problem with that. I would have worked anywhere if I could put food on the table. But guess also what happens? And I want to share a couple of stories with you that actually happened to me. I'll never forget one day I really, to this day, I had a meltdown, an epic meltdown. Someone said, hey, I know you're looking for a job and you've said you'll work anywhere. I know of a job that's going. I went, great, where is it? This company said, I don't want you to get excited. It's the most basic job that you can think of. And I went, cool, what is it? He's like, it's an opportunity. I'll take it. He's like, all you literally do is answer the phone every day, nine to five, answer the phone. You will do a bit of filing and make coffee for when the CEO meets with people. I'm like, cool, no problem. I was like, is there a chance for advancement? Yes, absolutely. I was like, sold. Got me an interview. Got an interview. Did a really good interview. I was like, yes, got this job. You know, the fact I know someone and they know me and they know my work and thought it did really well. Got the call. Sorry, didn't get it. So I went back to my buddy. I went, hey, what happened there? He's like, listen, I'm not gonna, I can't tell you on the record, but I can tell you off the record. And I went, cool. What did I do wrong? You didn't have a degree. I was like, it's to answer the phone. He's like, yep, the person that got, got it had a degree. Didn't have the same experience as you did, but had a degree. And I was like, really? Yeah, that's the way it works. Why did that happen? Now, before you go, oh, bad employers, or that's what happens. The understanding is when you have a minimum wage, you're going to look for the most value, the most bang for your buck. That's what you do when you hire stuff, right? When you hire a contractor or a plumber, you want the best bang for your buck, right? Employers are the exact same. They put a premium on education. They put a premium on a degree. Guess what? I couldn't compete. I couldn't com- compete with them and say, look, you're paying a minimum wage. Tell you what, instead of earning a minimum wage, I'll earn a dollar less an hour. Just give me an opportunity. I prove to you I'm better than that person. If I can't prove to you in a month that I'm better than this person, go hire them again. Because the economy sucks, you're going to get them. Or someone similar, I'll walk out. Just give me an opportunity. Can't do that. The government says no. But now let me give you, that's my story of someone on the higher level. Let me give you the side on the opposite side, the lower level. A family friend of ours, same time, same country, same example. The economy's down, economy's crashed, jobs, there are very few jobs, lots of people. Family friend of ours who are filthy rich. Give me explanation how rich these people were. They had a brand new top of the range Mercedes every year. Every year without fail, bang, new Mercedes. Owned a company, did very well, filthy rich, massive house, no big injury, absolutely fine. But this family decided for whatever reason you like this or hate this, doesn't matter, your feelings are irrelevant, had kids. And their kids were darlings. You know, very, very, listen, look, I struggled my whole life. My, my son and my daughters will never struggle. You know, they're precious things. And because they're so precious, when they were growing up through high school, never worked a day in their life. The vast majority of you listening, I'm, I'm sure, is similar to me. I had my first summer job when I was nine. The reason I had a summer job is because I wanted a fancy pair of runners because I used to play basketball. I wanted a pair of Converse. And my parents weren't paying that money. I had to work and earn it. But ever since then, I had summer jobs. I had part-time jobs when I got older. During school, I would go to school during the day, then come home and have, you know, four hours a night. Why? Because I wanted to be independent. I wanted to pay have my own money. I wanted to be able to buy my own runners. I wanted to buy my own clothes. I wanted to be able to go to the cinema. I wanted to be able to buy magazines, the soccer magazines, you know, the rest of the magazines. I wanted my own money. I wanted my independence. Vast majority of you are probably like that. Not these kids. They had everything given to them. They know my my son or daughters will never work until it's time. Well, guess what happened? Around 2008, when this economic crash happened, 2009, their eldest son turned 18. 
and it went all the way through high school, never worked a day in his life. And then all of a sudden, now in a normal time, this would have been fine. Went through all the time. And then all of a sudden, I'm going to college. I finished high school. Hey, I want my own job. And then went to the workforce and went, hey, baby, here I am. You've been waiting on me. I'm here. In a normal time, you probably would have got a job. No problem. Because the economic crash happens, because there was more workers than the jobs, guess what happens? Didn't work. Now, his case is maybe somewhat extreme because of who he was, but he was going to interviews, going, hey, I want to work. I want to work. I want to work. I want to work. Give me a job. Give me any job. And they were like, well, what have you done? Any summer jobs? No. Any part-time jobs? No. What's your experience? I went to school. So you have no tangible work experience or qualities or attributes you can sell to me to give you. No, I just want to learn. I want to start at the bottom. To show you how bad things were this time, this person went all the way through his first year in college. And potentially, I can't remember the exact time. It was either one year in college or two years in college. But his first job wasn't in Ireland. He got a visa and went over to Canada and got a job in a bar. Became a barman. Because why? Because in summer jobs, they don't care. It's you're there for the summer. You're there for what? I don't know how long visas are. 12 weeks, six weeks, eight weeks, whatever a summer visa is where you go overseas in the summer holidays. He went over and got a jar job. They didn't care. They were hiring everyone. They didn't matter the experience. And then he came back. But because of the economic recession, because of minimum wage laws, he couldn't say, look, I know I'm going against someone else. I know I'm going against someone maybe more experience or has more work experience or maybe is better, but give me an opportunity. Nope, can't do it. There is no opportunity when you have minimum wage laws. Because here's the thing. If you have no experience, you've got to make it up somehow. But how do you gain experience? You need to work. You need to work. You need to get out in the workforce. But if you can't do that, what do you do? When you have a minimum wage, it might sound great. It might be like, we're doing this so workers don't get exploited. Great. Totally for you. Totally with you to not let, let's not exploit workers. But let's empower them to make the decision. If someone wants to work for minimum wage, because they need to put food on the table, because they're desperate for an opportunity, then let them do it. We do not have a right. We are not guardians of the galaxy. We do not have a right to say, no, you can't work for that. But that's what we do when we have minimum wage laws. Now, that's with a general minimum wage law. This policy is that on steroids, going from $7.25 to $15 an hour. What do you think is going to happen? These employers are going to want the best bang for the book, and they're going to hire the creme de la creme. The poorest people in society are going to be the ones affected. The poorest people in society are going to be the ones that don't have a job, who are dying for an opportunity. So what's this going to happen? It's going to cause more poverty, more dependency on government, and then we're going to bash capitalism because government has got involved. That's the one aspect. The other aspect is, which you'll see in certain retail outlets, is where we go, you know what? We're just not going to hire anyone. We're going to give it to a machine. We're going to get a, a self-scan till. We're going to have all these machines do all the jobs because guess what? Machines never, never late. Machines don't have moods. Machines don't get angry. Machines don't cuss out customers. Machines are reliable. People are not. And then guess what happens? Even more people lose their job. This is a horrible policy at any time. But when you're at a point in time where right now your economy is hurting, where you've literally in some sectors shut economies down for a year where people are going to be out of work, where people are going to be displaced, where you have all this technology coming on board, and now you want to raise the minimum wage by that much, this is going to cause epic levels of poverty. And the poorest people, yet again, are going to be the ones that pay the heavy price. Because here's the problem that we need to talk about over the coming weeks. 
The minimum wage, you do not have a minimum wage problem. What we have is a purchasing power problem. Just because you raise the minimum wage doesn't mean, hey, I'm giving you a raise of $3 or $4 or $7 an hour that you can buy more stuff. No, because what happens when you raise the minimum wage? That means the cost to a business go up, which means the cost to the consumer goes up, which means you buy less. And then you add inflationary policies on top of that. Your dollar is worth even less. Everyone that these policies are going to affect, they may sound well-meaning, but they affect more the poorest people at society. And this is what we need to stop. This is why free markets and limited government are the answer. And it's what we must make the case for time and time again. I'm now joined by uh, Justin Haskins. He's the editorial director of the Heartland Institute. He also works for a website that's connected with them called StoppingSocialism.com, which I think uh, is absolutely vital. You know, America needs to stop socialism and the growth of government. And we're going to talk about a lot of key things. We're going to talk about your economy at large. We're going to talk to you about debt. We're going to talk to you about, uh, he's a story of a personal friend of his where he uh, his he logged into his bank at Merrill Lynch and had a, an ESG score. We're going to talk about that. And then we're also going to talk about solutions. So Justin, welcome. Thanks so much for joining today. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. It's great to be with you. Absolutely. So the one thing I think that's absolutely critical is I always find that the definitions change and we need to start a platform to for to just to, to talk about different issues. What do you think is, why do you think free markets or what is a definition of free markets to you that is absolutely critical that, you know, people should understand? Right. Well, I think that the, the debate that we have over capitalism, at least here in the United States, and I imagine it's same in Europe and around the world as well, is that uh, people have a tendency to think of, of capitalism as uh, the current, as the status quo, as the system that we have now. But in reality, the system that we have now is anything but a free market system. So to me, what I believe a free market system is as limited government as possible. Government should exist to protect rights for individuals and to make sure that everybody is playing by the same rules, but they're not there to try to manipulate the economy, to try to pick winners and losers, to try to pump money into certain parts of the economy, but not other parts of the economy. All of these activities lead to cronyism. They lead to corruption. They create economic distortions. And it's those distortions that cause all sorts of problems that everybody is always talking about and everyone is so upset about. So for me, the free market is unfettered economic activity uh, with, with, you know, some baseline rules that we all have to follow to make sure that nobody is cheating other people out of their their property, their wealth, their freedom. Uh, that's what a free market economy means, uh, I, I think, historically. And um, I think that that's the best model going forward. We're a long way from that, unfortunately. But I no. do think that, that is the... <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're a long way from it. No, I, 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 see, I, free, I see free markets everywhere. I look out my window and it's like, just free markets just passing on by. <laughs> yeah, I I don't know where you live because where I live, that's not what's outside my window. Mm -hmm. um, and it's it's just so unfortunate because the power of the free market is is it lifts 
It has lifted hundreds of millions of people from poverty. Even just a little drop of capitalism has done that over the past 50 years in places like India and China, which do not have free market economies, but they have freer economies than they used to have. And everywhere yeah. where we've had these these free market economies, historically, we've seen massive economic growth. So if we could just move to that model and get away from all this cronyism and, uh, and corruption, I think we'd be so much better off. Absolutely. And then on the flip side, because this is where I disagree with a lot of people in America. What's the definition of socialism in your eyes? Okay. So the, it depends on what you mean by socialism, right? So it's That's kind the of thing. Because yeah. where I would disagree with, like, and people like our mutual friend Glenn Beck is, he would look at Ireland and say, not a socialist country. I live here. I say very much a socialist country. And I think that's absolutely critical. So I'd love to hear your, what your definition of socialism so we can discuss it. Right. So I think that there are, I think that socialism ultimately, uh, if you're going historically, if you're looking at Karl Marx, who was, you know, really the face of socialism for a mm -hmm. long time, um, socialism is the collective ownership and management of property. Now, the degree to which you have the collective ownership and management of property is what determines whether you have a socialist society or not a socialist society. And that is really the, the hardest part of this whole debate, right? At what point do we cross over into socialism? Because every society, every economy that exists has collective ownership and management of at least some property, all right? We, mm -hmm. I don't even know of any people who, who are out there calling for, you know, let's get rid of all the public roads. There's nobody, there's nobody suggesting that, right? So yeah. obviously- Larry Sharp. <laughs> okay, right. So there's somebody, but mm -hmm. it, there's not a it's not popular is the point, yeah, right? No. So clearly there is some collective ownership and management of property, even in societies that are highly capitalistic. So it's mm -hmm. a scale, right? On one end of the scale, you have essentially no rules, essentially no other than just protecting individual liberty, but you have no collective ownership and management of property. That's on one side of the scale. That's your full-blown libertarianism. On the other side of the scale, you have, uh, you know, uh, everything, you have communism, where everything is collectively owned and managed. And I think it's somewhere in the middle you find you, you'll end up with socialism. And it's sort of a subjective standard, which is why I think you have one way of looking at it. And Glenn has another way of looking at it. And I think it's kind of hard to pin down. It's all exactly. about the degree to which you have that collective ownership and management of property. Absolutely. Like, I think, the, I think that the truth is that I, I don't think it's, it's possible to have a socialist country by itself because you either have all or nothing. And what I think a lot of countries are is a hybrid. So I look at Ireland, I would say it's, a, I, if you, if you came to me and said, John, is Ireland socialist? I always have said yes. And then people said, well, why do you say that? I kind of go, well, the government owns the major, the major media. It owns a lot of the energy companies. It owns the vast majority of public transportation, you know, buses and trams and trains. Um, it owns an airline. You know, so you can go on and on and on, and you see these are core, key, essential. And then also, I would also add um, that we've added a benefit, which America has followed, is where it's constant bailouts. So, you know, like we've had, um, they also own a lot of the banks as well. So like, you know, our third biggest bank is 75% owned by the government, where you've had these constant bailouts where it's too big to fail. So, you know, that would be an argument I would make that there's the argument for socialism. You might say, well, John, there's a free market and there's a 12.5% corporation tax, which America should follow. Um, but yeah, there's a capitalist aspect, but there's also a heavily socialist. And then also you have the government programs and different things. So I think that's one of the things we need to do because I look at America today and I see the left and the right. And I saw Donald Trump for whether you like him or hate him going, no, America will never be a socialist nation. But I'd love to ask you this is what, how many people have a clear definition of what socialism is in America? 
Yeah, I mean, virtually nobody has a clear definition of what socialism is here. It means whatever. And and, the, and it's been so politicized. And this is part of the problem. It's been so politicized. And that's why I think people like like Glenn Beck and even myself, they're reluctant to, re to refer to countries like Ireland and, and, and um, to Scandinavian countries, especially. That's the primary example that they use here is socialist, because when the left here talks about socialism, and we start talking about Venezuela and all these horror stories, they'll point to Ireland or they'll point to, you know, Sweden or Norway or Denmark. And they'll say, well, those are the socialist countries we want. We want to be like them. But in reality, when you look at the policies that they're advocating for, they actually even go further than a lot of the stuff that you have in Ireland. A lot of this, I mean, you just mentioned the low, the low corporate income tax. I mean, historically, even Scandinavian countries have had much lower corporate income taxes than the United States up until very recently. Is that what Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Bernie Sanders want? No, of course not. They want near balanced budgets, which they have in Scandinavia. No, of course not. You know, so they're, they're, they use that politically. They point to places like Ireland politically to say, look, this is an example of it actually working. And because nobody mm -hmm. knows anything about Ireland and America at yeah. all. You know, we just people just believe it. So yeah. we have a tendency on the right here to be a little more reluctant about using that word because we don't want people to think, oh, well, things are fine over in Europe and they're basically socialists. And so yeah. there's so much there's so much to this politically that we've just moved away from what the actually the actual ideology is. And that's a huge part of the problem. Absolutely. And like the one thing that frustrates me with some of my friends on the right is that reluctance to debate it. Because, you know, if you look at the, you know, the success, let's just take Ireland as an example. You know, well, you know, if AOC was like, Ireland's the socialist utopia that we want. Okay, great. But what makes Ireland successful? One is it's got all of its borders under control. There's a lot of water all the way around it. We're not landlocked. But secondly, we have foreign direct investment. So you have, you know, it's just great. You have Facebook, you have Google, you have YouTube, who have uh, their European headquarters in Ireland, which basically says, hey, we want to be part of Europe, but we don't want to be in it, and we have the access to it, but also it's 12 and a half points, you know, 12.5% corporation tax. So we've got that benefit of it. It's capitalism in some form that's actually made Ireland what it is. It's not because of the great social policies, but also I always point to people and kind of go, okay, great. You, you look at, you know, Ireland, England, uh, you know, Scandinavian countries, European countries, and say they're great. Where's the rights to riches stories? Because this is the thing that should be easy to argue from my point of view on taxation is there is no really rags to riches store. You need to get very lucky in Ireland because why? Because in Ireland, every cent over $35,000 is taxed at 40%. It's not millionaires and billionaires. It's, you know, it's all of a sudden the average working man. Not it's uh, In America, you have this thing, oh, well, they have to earn a quarter of a million or 400,000 to get the high taxes. I'll never earn that. In a socialist country, it's no, it's very much the average industrial wage. They're easy arguments that we should be able to combat, no? Yeah, that, that's that's actually a great point. I use that argument all the time when we're talking about Scandinavia because they also they have their top marginal tax rates are also very low. I mean, people are paying 56, their threshold is low. So they're paying 50 or 60% of their income when they're making what's equivalent in, in the United States equivalent to about $60,000 here. $60,000 is basically middle is, you know, middle class. It's not even upper middle class in the United mm -hmm. States, and they're paying top rates in these European countries. And that's the thing, nobody in the United States, nobody, literally no one would ever advocate for that here. Nobody yeah. would want that. Not even socialists would want that because they would say, you know, the rich should be paying these taxes, not yeah. regular people. And so 
it's just, there's so much ignorance when it comes to this issue. And it is important to talk about all these things. It's important for people on the right here to understand, well, everywhere, but especially here in America, from my perspective, to understand the issues, understand what's going on in other countries, and then be able to debate and argue these points. But unfortunately, so many people are unwilling to do that. They don't even want to have the conversations. And it just becomes a caricature, essentially, debate, where one side says socialism is just Venezuela. And then the other side says, no, socialism is Sweden. And there's no room in between. And there's no real conversation about the issues that you just referenced, which is a real serious problem that affects everyday people in much of Europe. Um, And there's just no debate even being had over this stuff because it's been so politicized at this point. So I'm hoping that at some point, we, we will get Americans actually talking about the, the ideological issues related to the actual philosophies behind these ideas and how it has impacted countries in a real way and get away from the just hurling caricatures at each other. But I don't see that happening anytime soon, unfortunately. No, that's the tough thing. And like, you know, we just talked about income tax. Like one of the frustrating things about me is, you know, and this is one part, you know, I have a lot of American friends. Most of my work is in America. And I see you all going crazy about gas prices right now. And it's like, this is the thing that really, I have, of all the issues I struggle to have sympathy with you guys on, it's high gas prices. Because <laughs> everyone's like, I see all these memes. Oh my God, it's $3.50, it's $4. And I'm like, if petrol, if diesel, or if a barrel of oil costs literally $0, if we were just giving it away for free, Ireland's not getting gas for less than $6 a gallon a barrel. Right. Obviously that fluctuates with, you know, exchange rates and stuff that cause so much of it is taxation. There's excise taxation, there's VAT and um, all these different things. Then you have sales tax on things. We have a VAT rate of 23%. Your sales tax is like six, what? 8%, 6% oh, yeah. in the States. Yep. Like These are all the add-on things. And it, all it does is hurt people. And it's usually the people who it hurts the most, which annoys me is it's not the Glenn Becks of the world who, you know, have, you know, if, oh, great. Oh, I got to pay 23% on all my purchases. I, I can afford it. Obviously, it's not ideal, but you can afford it. It's the person who's on minimum wage who right. is going to be really hurt. Like you're taking 23% of every, of every dollar they earn on taxes, on, on sales tax, not just on income tax. The, the government literally never says no. But what I'd love to talk to you about is because I, I was doing research for this interview and I've come across a new body, which I, I hope you know about, is the free market is what is the answer to all these problems because it boils down individual relationships. It, you know, it opens up commerce between me and you. It opens innovation. It opens creativity. But what we've seen over the last 6, 10, 20 years in America is the government having more and more of a say in the economy. This happened and I was very unpopular with my friends on the right when I was like, Donald Trump's tariffs, they're not good. They don't end well. But also, you shouldn't be able to coerce someone to say you should buy American. But also, what will the left do? Well, the left have pretty much taken his policies, but they've now called it, the, have you heard about this, the Mao uh, under the OMB, the Mao uh, departments oh, made yeah. in America? Oh, yeah. Why don't you tell us? Why don't you tell everyone about this? Department? Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, one of the first things that Joe Biden did when he became president of the, the of the United States was he created this office called the Made in America office, uh, which the acronym, of course, is just, just so perfect is Mao, the Mao agency. <laughs> That's what we've been calling it, which is just 
just incredible. Um, but the Made in America office has its its primary goal is to require government agencies to do business, to do more business with American only companies, regardless of cost. So in other words, they're trying to get American uh, federal agencies and government agencies from buying products and services from companies that have a lot of operations overseas. This is the main idea behind it. Now, on the surface, there are a lot of people in America, including a lot of people who love Donald Trump. And in fact, Donald Trump would come up with something just like this. In fact, it wouldn't be surprising at all who are mm -hmm. totally behind this. Uh, but Except he wouldn't have called it the Mao. He wouldn't have had that. I can no, it. No. Either him or somewhere in with, he, you yeah. can't call it this. Come up with a different name. <laughs> Yeah, that's very true. Uh, so th th there's no doubt, though, that the idea is something that, you know, uh, Donald Trump, an America first type guy, that he would support something like this. Where it gets dangerous, and this kind of hits home with the point that you were just making before, is once you start giving powers like this to government, what do they do with these powers, right? And one of the things that's included in, in, in some of the materials that the White House has put out, buried in these materials that the White House has put out about this Made in America office, is that they're not just going to do business with American companies, with just whatever American company happens to provide the best product or good or service at the lowest price. They're going to pick and choose those companies based on all sorts of other factors that really have nothing to do with the quality of the product. Uh, for example, so, a variety of social justice causes. They alluded yeah. to all sorts of things. They didn't specifically say what they're going to base their decisions on, but they have this special agency that's going to make sure that whatever companies they do business with are going to be companies that fit in with the left's agenda. I think climate change was was something that they did specifically mention. So yeah, they no did. fossil fuel companies, they want to reduce that. People that rely too guns. much on gasoline power cars. Of course, guns would be included in all of that as well. So- it, once you give government that kind of power, they will absolutely guaranteed abuse it. And you can see that there with an idea that, like I said, a lot of people on the right here in America would say, oh, yeah, made in America. Let's let's do it. But then once they have that power, how do they use it? How do they abuse it? How do they create more cronyism and corruption in, in the economy? And that's exactly what I was talking about earlier. Um, we don't have a free market, really. We really don't. There's all sorts of manipulations, and this is just one little tiny shred of it. But there's there's a billion other things that government does to manipulate the economy in other ways as well. Absolutely. And I, the one thing I'd love to ask your opinion on is, so a lot of people who listen to that kind of go, on, okay, you've got an issue with this policy. So why is it such a bad thing to go made in America, to buy America purchases? Because one of the things I would say, and I'd love to hear your opinion, is I would say there's nothing fundamentally flawed to that if you choose it. But what you're effectively saying is the reason I would say I'm a free market person is because I actually believe in the American people. You know, there's a reason you won the Cold War. There's a reason why Reagan, if you listen to those speeches back then, was like, you know, we, you know, we'll out innovate you because we'll, we're free. You're not. And that's why everyone was like, I know what they're saying that they've got Star Wars and I know Kennedy's saying that they don't, but maybe they do and they bet on the American people. What I would say is the American people will win anyway. If you give them an opportunity and it's whether it's made in China or whether it's made in other countries, eventually the American people will, will innovate them and they'll make a better product. And if they don't do it already. So that's what I would say. It's a merit-based in the free market. What would you argue? Would you agree or would you add something to that? Why is it so bad to have a made in America policy? Yeah, so I, I I agree with a lot of what you said, but but I but I do think that there is room to make the argument that 
look, I think free trade is fantastic. I think trade between nations is great. I think competition is great. The more competition you have, the more innovation you have, the better, the more efficient your economy becomes. Um, it, it, it makes everybody wealthier. It makes everybody better off when you have more competition. But the competition does have to, there ha does have to be a semblance of fairness in the marketplace in order for it all to work, right? Like in, in America, we have all these states, we have 50 states, which originally a lot of our states were essentially sovereign nations for, for the most part. They, they had total control over their economies. When we created the United States and we had the constitution, we brought everybody together. One of the reasons we did that was so that we could benefit from interstate commerce unfettered interstate commerce have have uh, uniform rules for all of those sorts of things and we've benefited immensely from that from that system right but that's because we all play generally speaking under relatively similar rules but when you start looking at countries like China for example they're not playing under the same rules at all they are manipulating their currencies they're manipulating their economies they have borderline slave labor in some parts of the country they can just bulldoze down your house and build a factory if they feel like it and so what i would argue is that we want to have free trade but we want to have free trade with countries that also have free people um, and mm -hmm. i don't think that that's an anti-liberty approach i think that that makes sense to, to 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 if you're going to have truly free trade you need to be trading with people who actually have freedom and in china i don't think they have that freedom. But the Made in America office doesn't distinguish between, say, China and Ireland or and any other country around the world. They're all just treated as not American. And I think yeah. that is not the right not the right approach at all. And I think that if we had a, a system where it was like, you know, look, we're going to open up trade, but only with the countries that are you know, really that have that have freedom, that have similar rules and similar uh, respect for individual liberty that we have in America, then I think it would actually encourage and in many ways sort of force other countries that don't have as much freedom for individual citizens, especially in Asia, uh, to, to sort of modernize and move more in that direction just so that they can continue uh, engaging in these in, in these trade policies with the United trade agreements with the United States, which obviously has a, a massive amount of buying power. So I think that there's a real uh, good uh, advantage and a mutual advantage that comes with having a policy like that. So mm -hmm. I'm not just a totally free trade person with just anybody at all, uh, but I do believe that we want to maximize trade with as many free nations, relatively speaking, as we possibly can find. Okay, so here's again where I'm going to be very unpopular and you're going to be, you're going to really hate me for this. Is So there's certain things that you said there that I kind of go, but with the greatest respect, America has no right to say what some of the stuff, especially one of the things you just said, and especially over the last two years, that China is a currency manipulator. No doubt it is. But you want a fair playing fields. America manipulates its currency. It's been devaluing its currency for the longest time. And it's literally gone on steroids over the last 12 months or yeah, 12 months since COVID really kicked in. And it's been on that train and it's literally just kind of gone whoom. Like literally 25% of every dollars in circulation right now is printed in the last 12 months. So how can someone would what would your argument to someone like me who'd kind of go that's not a real argument for for free trade that you know the devaluation of currency 
No, I, I think you make. I think you made a great point, and I and I think that the the way to address that is for America to stop devaluing its currency. Um, oh, it's totally. I, let's 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 get into a competition with China. Yeah, well, and, and then and that's and that's the thing. You know, I, there are a lot of competing interests here. There are a lot of issues. We're so far away from the free market world that you and I want that mm-hmm. it's really difficult to imagine almost a free market world like you and I want because we're so far away from it. I do think that it's important. Uh, for America to not engage in the, and I, I totally agree, America has done many of these same things. Um, and we don't want that. What we want is as many countries as possible. We, we should all be working toward having the freest economies and freest societies that we could possibly have. Uh, and obviously, there's a spectrum there. And for me, the currency manipulation that China does is not really the main issue. For me, the main issue is, you know, the fact that they don't really have individual liberty there. The fact that they have, like, as I said before, they have totally different labor standards, totally different uh, standards related towards uh, in- individual. They can throw you in prison for practically anything. They can execute you for drug possession. I mean, they just have totally and completely different uh, norms in China. And I think that those things, the idea that they can just bulldoze down your house, bulldoze down a pole apartment complexes, and then build a factory there, and then expect some factory in the United States to compete with similar kind, with with totally different laws and totally different rules and totally different respects for uh, property ownership, I think is just not realistic. Um, There's going to be a huge advantage in favor of China. And so what we want to do is have similar rules across the board. That doesn't mean that it's always going to benefit America. Sometimes America is going to have to do things uh, that they've been, or reject policies that they've embraced in the past. Like you said, the currency manipulation thing is a great example of that. Uh, but I do think that we need to move in a direction where we should always be pushing for more freedom, for more yep. liberty, and that includes free trade. I mean, there's just no way around it. But I just don't think that we should have free trade with countries that are not interested in freedom at all. And I think that that's where there is some room to try to negotiate something with China to get them moving more in that direction. But uh, that's not what a lot of people who take these positions believe. I mean, they're yeah. just looking at it from a nationalistic perspective, and that's not the perspective that I'm coming from. The only one thing, and this is not a question, just something to think on, is the one thing anyone who sort of agrees with you on this is the one thing I'd always say is just urge where your line is of who you want to do business with. Because it's easy to kind of look at a country like China or Venezuela or Cuba and kind of go, yeah, we don't want to do business because of the human rights abuses. And so, okay, if that's your decision, fine. But where is the line? Because I would say, look at countries like Ireland, where, you know, they don't share the same value. Like, no other country historically shares the values that America has. One fundamental difference is, you know, not getting off topic, is you believe rights come from God and it's government's job to protect them. We don't have, no other country has that system. So in Ireland, it's government gives you the rights. And, you know, where, you know, if you look at Ireland, just as an example, because we're here, we're ta- I'm here, um, we don't have any rights. I'm, a, I'm effectively a prisoner in my own home right now. I can't go more than three miles from my house. I've been on lockdown since Christmas Eve with no end in sight. Um, you know, those, these legislation ends in Easter Sunday and it's already been leaked because that's how we do things today. We leak things through the press rather than politicians saying it. It's going to be another six weeks. I can't go to get my hair cut. Not that that's a problem for me. Can't go to a bar, a restaurant. All I can do, the only reasons I can leave my house are two. One is to go to the shop to buy supplies and two is to walk the dog. Everything else, I have to stay at home. And so where's your line? Because you, I would say, especially as COVID and what we're going to talk about when we come back about the Great Reset is our world is changing. So you need, everyone needs to find where their line is and who you want to do business with. So just something to, just to think about.
need to worry about anything what we just talked about because the great reset is here. The masterminds have come into Davos and went, look, we've got it all sorted. We know what we need to do. And I would love to run a theory by you. I actually think, and I've been saying this to people, and some people are like skeptical. I think the reason this has happened is because of Donald Trump. Not because of anything great or anything bad, but because if you listen to the agenda, like we, if, you, if you've been following world politics for the last 10, 20, 30 years, it was agenda, 20, uh, agenda 21, Agenda 2030. Then Donald Trump got in and just kind of messed up the apple cart and started pulling out Paris Accord and doing different things. They went, we can't have this. So what, why we have all this infrastructure, let's just do it through companies. And companies are starting to get involved and companies are starting to go, yeah, we can do all this. And it can be through the free market because this is what the right loves to talk about. Hey, we, we want to trade how we want to trade. And all of a sudden, what's going to happen is they're going to get power. But the end game is still the same because what's going to happen is, as you see in China, where if the companies get all this power and they get this agenda right, the com- government will just take it. There was a story in China a couple of weeks ago where one of the millionaires or billionaires of China dared question their policy on COVID. All of a sudden, they're getting a regulatory visit and he's lost like billions on the stock market. That's how quickly it's done. These companies, you want to, don't want to get them bad, better government because you will never, ever win. But what is your theory on the Great Reset? What, what, explain it to, to people who, you know, that you've been, because you've been doing a lot of research on it. What's the, what's the biggest aim that you think that they want to do? Yeah, I, I think that this is ultimately, if you look at it from, if you look at the left's pers- from the perspective from the left, right, what is the left always trying to do? The left is always trying to centralize power, centralize decision making, centralize control. And in the United States, we have this really annoying thing called the Constitution that gets in the way of that all the time, constantly. And for a long time, what the left was trying to do is they were trying to use the court system here to just sort of reinterpret the Constitution, sometimes in completely ridiculous, absurd ways, in order to expand power. And that was the plan. And then, as you said, Donald Trump came into office and put in hundreds of federal judges that were chosen by people that uh, believe in individual liberty and believe in an originalist interpretation of the Constitution. He put in uh, three Supreme Court justices, completely changed the, the face of the Supreme Court. And I think the left realized at some point, look, we're not going to be able to do it that way. It's just not going to be able to happen. So how do we get around these legal protections? The Well, the way we get around these legal protections is we have corporations do our dirty work for us. Now, why would corporations do this? The left's been at war with corporations for a very long time. They they are all constantly demonizing corporations all the time. Some of them have been. Uh, So listen, hold on. Hold on. Listen, listen. Coca-Cola and Disney and Merrill Lynch are all little <laughs> mom and pop stores. I won't I won't yeah. have you lie on this show. <laughs> the fact that's checkers will kill us. That's how, that's how they would have you. That's what they'd have you believed. <laughs> you know, that's what they would look, have you believe. Look, but, have you not seen the videos of the mom and pop store? They're literally just, you know, there's a little glass, that uh, production line of glasses and tins with the Coke going in it. And there's a little old lady putting it in and then putting the caps on. <laughs> that's what it is. Just a little startup. It's a family business. That's yeah, exactly. You're going to make it big one day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean it's it is funny how they've tried to they've tried to change the way that we think about corporate. I mean these corporations are ma- they're bigger and more powerful than they have ever been and they try to personalize them into something that they're obviously not. Uh, but but the, th- the the main idea here was for a long time the left wanted to tax corporations. They wanted to take their they saw their money, they saw their wealth and they said we could use that wealth for 
a variety of social programs and other things that we want. And so it was very much focused on how do we control corporations? How do we take their wealth from them? How do we use that wealth for other purposes? Because we don't like the fact that corporations are hoarding all this money. That was what a lot of people on the left believed. And that's what a lot of people on the left still believe. I mean, if that's what, if you talk to Bernie Sanders, he would say something exactly like that. Uh, But what the Great Reset does is it takes that idea and it says, you know what? If we could just find a way to incentivize or coerce these businesses into doing what we want, because we know these businesses will essentially do whatever it takes to make money. So if we can just come up with a way to give these people money, they'll do whatever we want. And then we don't have to worry about the Constitution because, you know, it's Facebook that's censoring your speech. It's not the government. We're not doing it. It's, uh, you know, Coca-Cola that's firing people or or not giving uh, promotions to men because they need a certain percentage of women on in management. It's not the government that's telling them that they have to do that. And so they have built this entire superstructure. And this is really what the Great Reset is all about. This entire superstructure for managing this and for coercing businesses to engage in these behaviors and rewarding the businesses. This is going to be the long-term goal, rewarding businesses that go along with these woke causes. Uh, And how do we know which businesses are going along with these woke causes and which businesses aren't? And how do we distinguish from one business to another? This system called an ESG system, this environment, social, and governance system. It's this really complicated framework where they look at all sorts of different things that businesses are doing, just like the things that I I was talking about before. How many women do you have on your board of directors? How many women do you have in management? Uh, What's the gender identity of people in your corporation? How many different minority groups do you have working for you? Uh, how much uh, CO2 emissions are you admitting in your supply chain? There, there's, there's literally like hundreds of different things that they're looking at. And these companies have already bought into this. They've already started self-reporting all of this information. They've actually been doing it for years. And most people just haven't realized that this has been going on because they know that this is the direction that the world is moving in. And the government, which is printing central banks and governments are printing massive amounts of money, trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars. Governments uh, have been have been feeding this idea to, to corporations, at least this is what I believe, that, hey, if you want to, if you want some of this money, if you want to be in the good graces of government, you want to be in the good graces of the financial institutions and the central banks and all these people with all this money that's coming down the road, then you better do what we want you to do. And they've seen the writing on the wall. I think they've been told explicitly by some by some groups of people that this is where things are headed. And so they started building these, these massive ESG infrastructures within their companies so that they would be on you know, the right side of history, so to speak, uh, and, and, and be able to survive the Great Reset when it inevitably comes. Now, it wasn't called the Great Reset when all this stuff started. That's a marketing term that was pushed in 2020 for the first time, really. Uh, but this idea has been around for probably a decade, maybe a little less than a decade, something like that. I don't, we don't know exactly when it started. Um, but this idea of using corporations to, pers- to, to, to force society to adopt these left-wing causes and using massive money printing and regulatory systems to coerce businesses to go along with it. This is something that has been going on now for about a decade at least And it's only now reaching the point where it's starting to actually impact everyday life. And you're seeing this in corporations all around the world. And it's only going to get worse from here. I mean, this it's really, really terrifying stuff. And the more we dig into it, and I've been spending virtually all my time doing this now for the past couple of months. Wow, you have a great life. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's 
it's pretty brutal. I got to be honest uh-huh. with you. Uh, but the more we dig into it, the, the scarier it looks and the more we're learning every single day. And again, one of the main things we're learning is that this has actually been going on for years and just nobody noticed. Nobody realized that it was happening. This whole infrastructure has been built in hundreds and hundreds of multi hundreds of millions of dollar companies, in some cases, billion dollar companies, and nobody noticed that this was going on. Um, and now now that you have Joe Biden in office and now that you've got uh, the ma- the money printers are running full steam, this system is going to take on a whole new life of its own. And we're going to see remarkably terrifying things for, for from the perspective of people who support individual liberty uh, over the next few years. But it also affects individuals because you, you your friend had an interesting situation when he logged into his bank recently. Yes, that's exactly right. So I had a coworker of mine who I'm friends with uh, call me up one day. He knows that I'm working on all of this stuff. He logs into his Merrill Lynch account. Merrill Lynch is owned by Bank of America. The CEO of Bank of America is a huge Great Reset supporter, very involved in these ESG systems. He calls me up on the phone and he says, hey, you'll never believe it. I logged into my Merrill Lynch account to check my 401k. And I uh, a notice popped up on my screen that told me I have an ESG score. I have a score myself, not some company. I have an e- I've been given an ESG score. Now, the score is not, it's not as though Merrill Lynch is looking at my friend's life and then mm. giving him a score based on the things he does every day. They're basing it on his investments. And what it did was it gave him a score in three different categories, the E, the S, and the G. Uh, and then it gave him a composite score. I think it was, I think it was a 4.7 out of 10, you know, so uh, he's a it's better than I would do. <laughs> yeah, probably right. I think um, mine's minus 4.7. <laughs> yeah, exactly. A 4.7 out of 10. And and then it told him, you know, if you want to improve your ESG score, there's a bunch of different ways you can go about doing it. And so we started digging into Merrill Lynch. We started digging into the, their ESG system that they have in, in Merrill Lynch. They rely on this company called MSCI uh, to get their ESG scores. They have ESG scores available for hundreds and hundreds of companies. We don't even know exactly how many companies because it's too difficult to count them the way that they have the system. They have recommendations for people so that if you want to improve your ESG score uh, and you care about climate change, there's a whole bunch of recommendations for these are the companies that you should invest in if you want to improve your ESG score. Now, this is all right now voluntary, right? I mean, they're giving you the ESG score whether you want it or not. <laughs> That's not voluntary. But it's it's voluntary in the sense that you don't actually have to do anything. But that's the next step in the process. The whole infrastructure is there. Exactly. So all they have to do now, they know who the bad investors are and who the good investors are. Now all they have to do is start rewarding the good investors and punishing the bad investors in order to manipulate society. It's just one step further than where they've already gone. It's eerily similar to the social credit score systems that you're probably familiar with in China and the stuff that they've been rolling out. It's very similar to that. And the more we've dug into it, the more we've seen there's all kinds of really eerie, creepy things going on in finance that are just like this. For example, the International Monetary Fund, not that long ago, I think it was within, it was definitely within the past year, came out with this white paper where they recommended that that, uh, credit scores, like if you want to go to the bank to get a loan for a car or something like that, that your credit score should be based not on financial data, because that's not a very good measure, you know, whether you pay (laughs) your bills or not, but 
Instead, on your browsing history and the, and the sort of technology that you use to access the internet. So they actually want to look at what websites you go to to determine whether you deserve to get a car loan or a mortgage for your house. This is the kind of stuff that they're, that they're all talking about now in the upper echelons of the International Monetary, uh, uh, the International Monetary Fund, uh, the World Economic Forum, the United Nations, uh, the, the Biden administration, which has people who are deeply tied to all of this, like John Kerry. These are the kinds of ideas that they're floating out there. And you can just imagine how, if this is what they're saying now, if, if they've been building the system for years and there's trillions and trillions of dollars at stake, what is it going to look like a year from now, two years from now, three years from now? It's only going to get worse as this system continues to expand and be drawn out. And it's not just about businesses. It's about individuals, as you said earlier. It's going to come for all of us eventually because this is the way that you can control society without throwing people into gulags and and you know running people over with tanks. You don't need to do that anymore. All you have to do is is basically coerce them into doing the things you want by controlling the financial system. And now you have all of the controls over society that people like Mao Zedong had, had dreamed of, you know, 50, 60 years ago. Absolutely. And it's, it's to, I emphasize that point of how, what's this going to look like in a couple of years? Because I'm, I don't know if you ever watched it. There was a, there's a great show on Netflix. I watched it several years ago, Black Mirror. And they did one where they had the social score. And, you know, I never, I always, when I saw, I, I got the, the behind the scenes and, you know, how you interact with people, and how you buy stuff. Totally got that. But they literally rate them where they're in the lift of how they look. You know, what was your smile like, you know, and how you look. And I kind of went, that never happened. But now you literally see wokeness where, oh, I'm offended by you. It's like, you looked at me, you know, it's all going to start playing in. But we only have a couple of minutes left. And I just want to talk to you real quick about solutions. Because this is where I think it's absolutely critical to understand why America is exceptional, your constitution and your bill of rights, and most importantly, your declaration of independence, but also free markets. Because if you're looking at all everything we've just spoken about, there seems to me that there's, there's two great opportunities out there to solve all these problems or to make them null and void. But you have to believe in some principles. The first one is basically the laws of why people buy stuff. There used to be the, the old thought four P's of marketing. You buy things because of its place, its product, its the price, or its the promotion. Well, guess what? If you're a business looking for a USP right now, a unique selling point of, hey, what distinguishes me from my competition? I ain't doing that ESG crap. Number, even if I agree with it, it's just too much work. I just, I'm going to give you a great product or a great service at a great price. Come do business with me. Yeah, I think. Uh, yeah, I, th I think. I think that's a that's a great point. I think it's important for individuals in their lives right now to make a stand against these kinds of things and and actually tell these businesses, look, I don't, I'm not, I don't want to buy from a business that's engaged in any of this stuff. This is a corrupt scheme. It's cronyism at its worst. And I'm not going to buy from you. I'm not going to bank with you. I'm not going to do my business with you. And we're early enough in the process where if enough people were actually saying that and only going towards the companies that are focusing on providing products and goods and services at, at the lowest prices in the most efficient way, then this whole system would come crumbling down. The problem is so many people don't even know that it's going on. It's been going on for years. This whole infrastructure has been built and nobody even knew about it. I mean, I didn't even know about it. Nobody knew about it. And so we need to get people educated on it so that they can make those smart decisions and understand that, that the decisions that they're making do have a much larger impact. I think another thing that we need to do, because you just said, you know, a lot of this comes down to economics, but if you're a company and the government is saying, you know what, we're going to give you a whole bunch of money if you do what we tell you to do, then, you know, that 
economically speaking, kind of makes sense to you, right? That you actually have a fiduciary obligation to go with wherever the money is. And yeah. so we have to limit government spending. We have to get some kind of a, of, a, of a limit on government spending through a balanced budget amendment or something like that, which is very difficult to do, but possible. I, How I about just pass a budget for a start? Well, that's the, but that's the point. Two right? and eight call. They want their economics back. Yeah, but that's the point. They have no reason to do it because we're now in fantasy land where you just print infinite amounts of money and you don't even need to pass a budget in order to do it. And the Fed yeah. is just handing out money now directly. So it's total madness and we have to get all of that stuff under control. Unfortunately, I don't know. I don't, I don't see Joe Biden doing that or going along with that. In America, we have the ability to amend our constitution. It's never been done, but it can be done. Uh, we, we can Convention amend the constitution here, right, through the states only. And so I, I think if, right, if we had a balanced budget amendment type thing go through the states, and we actually have a bunch of states that have already said they want to do this, um, then we could we could really stop a lot of this Great Reset stuff that way as well. There are solutions, there are other smaller things too that we don't have time to get into, but yeah. there, there are The other big one I wanted to talk to you about was, because I, I, I thought that I was a I was amazed by this at the start, but I, because I used to always be in the libertarian circles and people kind of go, oh, we have to end the Fed, end the Fed, end the Fed. And then cryptocurrency came along, kind of going, that's going to do that automatically because, you know, there's only so long this is going to happen. But I think cryptocurrency is going to be absolutely critical to solve the ESGs as well. Number one, because there's going to come a point in time where Merrill Lynch or Bank of America or whoever who these companies are, Goldman Sachs, going, you want to buy a gun? We're not giving it to you. You want to buy a car? You're old. Oh, you voted for Donald Trump. Oh, bad. You have a don't tread on me flag in the back. No, we're not lending to you. Where do you go for money? Well, cryptocurrency, because there's companies you can actually borrow against your cryptocurrency, but also how you can trade. And I think that's going to play a massive role. Do you, do you see cryptocurrency playing a big role? Whether it's, and I'm just want to specify because people always go, which one? I don't know whether it's Bitcoin or Ethereum or Dash, whichever one is your favorite, XRP. But I think as a global community, I think it's got ma massive potential. Yeah, you, you know, I, I never really paid much attention to cryptocurrency until very recently, in large part because of this, because I saw all the, the writing on the wall. I said, look, what is the escape hatch here? And actually, I do think that cryptocurrency could be that escape hatch because it is much more fluid uh, than gold and silver and things like that that have traditionally been used as a hedge on lots of government spending. You can actually quickly, uh, you know, use it as a medium of exchange and all of that. There's a, there's a limit on a lot of these cryptos and how much exists in the world and they can't necessarily create more of it, which is a huge advantage over what we're seeing with the Fed and other central currencies, fiat currencies. And so uh, I do think that there's an opportunity here for cryptocurrency. In fact, you could maybe make the argument that cryptocurrency is going to save the world. So, I mean, it is entirely possible that that could happen, and I am a big believer in it. Uh, the only question is, is government going to do everything it can to just absolutely destroy it and make it illegal to even have it? Uh, and in some parts of the world, I think that could happen. In China, in fact, they've already started moving in that direction. In the They're going to create States, their own. They're going to create their own, and they're going to make all other kinds of cryptocurrencies illegal. And the United States, just recently, our chairman of our Fed came out and said that he wants to develop a Fed cryptocurrency, that this is something that they're looking into. So uh, in America, it's hard to you know take this away from people. It's hard. To, we're really touchy about our property rights. And so I don't know if they're going to be able to seize cryptocurrency. But if they get desperate enough, who knows? But as long as they don't do that, I think you're exactly right. It also becomes sort of a countercultural thing 
thing too, right? Where yeah. it's like, you know what? Like screw the system. I don't want to be part of the system. I want to be outside of the system. The system is trash. And you may even get people who are on the far left who buy into all of this stuff and say, you know, I just don't even want to be part of the big cronyist corporate, big Sarah bank, Silverman. all of that. Yeah, exactly. And so I'm going, I'm going crypto because it's outside of all of that. So I do think there's a lot of potential there for crypto, but who knows? Well, listen, thank you so much for joining us. Where can people find your work? Uh, they can find me at Justin T. Haskins on Facebook and Socialist Twitter and Parler and all of those social media platforms. Also at StoppingSocialism.com and Heartland.org. Absolutely. Check it out. And thank you so much for tuning in today, America. We all finish up the way we always do by saluting you, the American people. You may have a lot of pain and anger and despair what's going on right now, but please never forget the sentence. It's hopeful. We finish it each and every week. America is great because Americans are good. Yes, you face problems, but there's not one problem you as a people cannot solve. Until next Saturday at 12 noon Eastern, have a beautiful and blessed week. Freedom versus freebies. This is Freedom's Disciple with Jonathan Dunn on the Blaze Radio Network.